The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity called the HIV Prevention Certified Provider Program, a training and certificate program designed to improve competencies and expand the HIV prevention workforce. Featuring Dr. Donna Sweet from the University of Kansas School of Medicine in Wichita, Kansas. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash VQJ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to the live webcast component of Creating an HIV Prevention Certified Provider Workshop, a training and certificate program designed to improve the competencies of providers in delivering comprehensive HIV prevention. This is a kickoff webinar webcast for becoming an HIV Prevention Certified Provider, and you can receive listing in the National Online Directory of HIV PCPs. This is the website that you can go to to get more information, and I do encourage all of you to further your education once we finish this today. I'm Donna Sweet. I'm Professor of Medicine at the University of Kansas School of Medicine in Wichita. I have been taking care of HIV-infected patients since before we knew it was HIV. Saw my first patient in 1983. So I'm very invested in trying to stop this epidemic, and we certainly do have better biologic ways of helping prevention than we've ever had before. So we're going to start with just the importance of early detection. I'm sure I don't have to tell most people in this audience that there's benefits for the patients if we find them early. They don't get so sick. There's less opportunistic infections. There are community benefits, and we'll talk more about the fact that patients who are undetectable on their viral load due to antiretroviral therapy are essentially not capable of spreading it sexually anymore. And there's economic benefits because the early use of HIV treatments is less costly than treatment of opportunistic infections, cancers, and the late-stage HIV-AIDS that we still see coming in. The CDC has recommended routine testing for age 13 to 64 since 2006. It's voluntary, opt-out, no separate consent needed, pre-test counseling not required, and repeat testing left to the discretion of the provider. And high-risk patients should be tested at least annually. We're going to talk about who those high-risk patients are and how we find them. This I put for your perusal so that you have it when you need it, but it shows you how much better our testing is. In the old days, the first generation of antibody tests that we used to diagnose this had a 60-day window before people who were infected could be guaranteed to be positive on the test. We've moved that to second generation about 45 days, third generation about 22 days, and if you use the fourth generation antibody antigen test, it's down to about 11 days. So very short window. One we need to think about if we have people who might have acute infection where you want to do the HIV RNA as opposed to an antibody test. U equal U, as it's known, shows that ART reduces the viral load in a patient with HIV. And U equal U is a program that promotes suppressing the viral load of an HIV-infected patient. When the viral load is below detection, and detection defined by the CDC here is less than 200 copies per ml, the risk of transmission is extremely minimal and essentially non-existent is the verbiage that the CDC has allowed us to use which leads to TASP, which is Treatment as Prevention, a program that uses ART to decrease the risk of HIV transmission, reduces HIV viral load in blood, semen, vaginal fluid, and rectal fluid, the fluids that transmit it. And when it's undetectable, HIV does not affect the patient's health, and HIV transmission risk is essentially eliminated. 
But we're not doing as well as we should in the United States. Not all people here are getting the care they need. So for TASP to really work as the prevention we want it to, we've got a lot more people we need to get into treatment. HIV transmission risk is here. This is for your information. It's one of those things I like to keep on my desk just as an aid when people ask. But it shows you that receptive anal intercourse is among the sexual exposure categories, the thing that we have to be the most cautious with. HIV infections started to stabilize in 2013, which is why with new biologic means of helping prevention like PrEP, if we could get it more into use, we could drop this down to the next level, hopefully, so we have less and less people getting infected. So according to the estimates from the CDC, one in two African-American men who have sex with men have a lifetime risk of acquiring HIV, which equates to almost 10,000 black African-American MSM becoming infected each year. And then, as you can see, it's one in two for African-American, one in five for Hispanics, and one in 11 in whites. Huge overrepresentation. The other thing that is becoming more and more obvious is that the South makes up 52% of new HIV diagnoses in the United States. As you can see, the darker blue is where we see new incident infections, and the rate of diagnosis is the higher, which also means the prevalence is the highest. I like this slide to point out that you can do the very same things in North Dakota that you do in Florida and have much less of a risk of acquiring HIV because of the low prevalence. If you are sexually active, or injecting drugs in a high prevalence area, you're much more likely to acquire it, which is why we need more and more discussion of PrEP and TASP in this population in the southern United States. So we have data on the burden of HIV in the United States, and greater than 50% of new infections, new diagnoses occur in 49 counties, Washington, D.C., and San Juan. And seven states have a substantial rural burden with more than 75 cases and greater than 10% of their diagnoses in rural areas. I do rural outreach in Kansas, and I will tell you it is much more difficult for patients in small towns, oftentimes who are living in very poor circumstances and poverty level, to get the kind of care that they need which is why ending the HIV epidemic, a plan for America, has become very popularized. Many people are calling it ETE, ending the epidemic. It calls for a 75% reduction in new HIV infections in five years and more than a 90% reduction in 10 years. The platform is to diagnose all people with HIV as early as possible, treat everyone rapidly and effectively to reach sustained viral suppression, prevent new transmissions by using proven interventions including PrEP and syringe programs, and then respond quickly to potential HIV outbreaks so that we don't have another Scott County like we had in Indiana where hundreds of people were infected through an injection drug-using community. This is just a graphic that shows the HIV prevention strategies that we've used. As someone who's been counseling patients for almost 30 years, it truly hasn't worked. I mean, condoms help, and we know that, but they have to be used. We've not been able to come up with a vaccine, but what has been shown to be truly helpful is TASP, treatment as prevention, and PrEP, the thing that we're going to be talking the most about here. Now, in between treatment as prevention and PrEP, there's PEP. PEP, or post-exposure prophylaxis, is an approach that stops the virus from infecting cells after recent exposure. So adults and adolescents aged greater than 13, including pregnant women with normal renal function, 
are put on a three-drug regimen with two nukes and an integrase inhibitor for 28 to 30 days. Adults and adolescents with renal dysfunction can be put on a different set of nukes, zidovudine and lamuvudine, again with either raltegravir or dalutegravir, an integrase inhibitor. It's for 28 days. It's important that the patient take it routinely during the 28 days. And it's not 100% effective, but it does reduce the chance of transmitting HIV to others. So the do's of PEP, give it to patients who are not infected. Start as soon as possible within 72 hours after the potential exposure, be it unprotected sexual encounter, sexual assault, or shared needles. But don't use it as a substitute for safe practices, PrEP, condoms, or clean needles. But you should think about people who need PEP, if they come to you, think about PrEP because they might need something more than what they've been doing. So within three days after exposure, you clarify the nature of the exposure, evaluate for tolerance of the PEP regimen, and these regimens are very tolerable now, and monitor toxicities. You provide risk reduction counseling, advice on safer sex practices, avoiding pregnancy and breastfeeding, avoiding needle sharing, and avoiding donation of blood plasma organs and tissues. So again, this is the thing we've done with occupational exposure for years. We have now moved it into the non-occupational sexual exposure injection drug use needle sharing realm. So PEP awareness is poor. Many providers and members of the LGBT community who are often at risk are not aware of its availability. So we have advocacy groups that are working to raise awareness and initiate conversations you can with your patients about this option. And as I said, consider transitioning those who continue to have risk factors for acquiring HIV from PEP to PrEP. So what is PrEP? It's a preventive medication for persons not living with HIV, those who don't have it at this point, but are at high risk of exposure with condomless sexual encounters and IV drug use. It's highly effective when taken daily. It reduces the risk of infection from sexual contacts by 99% and the risk of infection from IV drug use in the studies by 74%. So again, very efficacious, but one needs to take it on a very regular basis. There are now two PrEP medications approved by the FDA, emtricitabine and tenofovir TDF. The F-TDF combination has been approved since 2012 in combination with safer sex practices to reduce the risk of sexually acquired HIV in at-risk adults and adolescents weighing more than or equal to 35 kilograms. Adverse events, headaches, abdominal pain, and decreased weight in some. The newly approved drug is emtricitabine and tenofovir alafenamide, the F-TAF, for at-risk adults and adolescents weighing greater than or equal 35 kilograms to reduce the risk of HIV infection from sexual acquisition, excluding individuals at risk from receptive vaginal sex. It did not get an indication for cisgender women, and in the DISCOVER trial, diarrhea was the leading adverse event in this population. So who's a candidate for PrEP? Individuals who have HIV-infected partners should automatically be considered. That does lead to the discussion, though, of if U equals U and there's only interaction between the two and the partnership, does the uninfected one need to have PrEP? If indeed they ask for it and think they might be at risk, I would give it because there may be things that we don't know about the situation. 
So uninfected individuals who are at high risk for acquiring sexually acquired HIV may include those engaging in sexual activity within a high prevalence area or social network and who have additional risk factors for HIV acquisition, such as other STIs, which increase the incidence of new HIV infection if present, use of illicit drugs or alcohol dependence, exchange of sex for commodities. And we've gotten away from trying to say prostitution. It's anybody who has to trade sex to get the things that they need in life food, a sofa to rest on, a drive somewhere. And then incarceration also leads to increased risks, possibilities. So you can't know who's at risk for this if you don't take a sexual history. It's recommended for all adult and adolescent patients as part of ongoing primary care. There are barriers. There's urgent care issues. We have more and more things that we are supposed to be doing for every patient in prevention, vaccinations, screening tests, and other issues, along with the fact that they may have their own set of problems they wish to talk about. There is provider discomfort or anticipated patient discomfort, and I will tell you as somebody who does a lot of this discussion, the patients are much more comfortable about it than many physicians who haven't practiced it. Patients may not be comfortable talking about their sexual history, sex partners, or sexual practices, so sometimes couching it in ways so that they feel that you are on their side and that you're not trying to accuse them of something. The benefits, there's an opportunity for risk reduction counseling, an opportunity to assess birth control needs, an opportunity for supporting consistent and correct condom use. Condoms are still an important part of prevention of STIs in our country. And then identification of individuals at risk for STIs, including HIV, appropriate anatomical sites for certain STI tests, and appropriate prevention methods. And so that I don't forget it, I don't know how many of you do testing for STI sexually trans transmitted infections. But if you're checking for gonorrhea and chlamydia, it is critical that you do site-of-sex testing, i.e. if they use an oral cavity for sex, you should do pharyngeal swabs. If they use rectal vault for sexual practices, be it male or female, then they need to have that site tested with swabbing for chlamydia and gonorrhea. And then urethra and or urine is certainly the third site. But remember, STIs can be very easily missed if you don't test the appropriate site of sex. So a few tips for discussing sexual history. Think about your own comfort level discussing sexual issues, and you're going to have to start somewhere, so practice. Ask partners, relatives, caregivers, people who are in the room to step outside briefly so you can have some private time with your patient. Make the patient feel comfortable. Use neutral and inclusive terms like partners. Avoid assumptions based on age, appearance, marital status, or any other factors. Pay attention to your body language and posture to avoid reacting overtly. And if a patient seems offended or confused by something you ask, rephrase the question or explain why you're asking or simply say, I hope you don't find this offensive, but I'm simply trying to do the best for your health. Reassure your patient that the conversation is confidential. And then when talking to a transgender patient especially, be sure to use their correct and preferred pronouns and names. And if indeed your practice is not to find out what their preferred pronoun is, try to learn how to do that. Do they want to be he or she? And then use that term regardless of what the appearance may be.
So sexual history questions to assess the risk. What is or are the genders of your current sexual partners? How many men have you had sex with? And ask that of men and women. How many times did you have receptive anal sex? You were the bottom with a man who was not wearing a condom. How many of your male sex partners were HIV positive? How many times did you have insertive anal sex? You were the top with an HIV positive male partner without a condom. And have you used methamphetamine such as crystal or speed, which we know increases the load of risky behavior that occurs in sexual actions? So if you've got heterosexual clients that you're assessing risk in, what are or is the genders of your current sexual partners? How many men, women have you had sex with? How many times did you have vaginal or anal sex when neither you nor your partner wore a condom? And how many of your sex partners were HIV positive? Or how many times did you have vaginal or anal sex with an HIV positive partner without a condom? So trying to normalize that discussion in your practice will help. And then if you're assessing risk in IV drug users, ask if they've ever injected drugs that were not prescribed. When did you last inject drugs? In the past six months, have you injected with needle syringes or other drug operation equipment that had already been used by another person? Are you sharing? And in the past six months, have you been in a methadone or any other medication-based treatment program? And you may not have to ask all of those questions, but you certainly should ask some of them. Now, this is a busy slide. It's here for your reference. It's the CDC update and summary of guidance for PrEP use. So at baseline, you want an HIV-1-2 antigen antibody, fourth-generation antibody test, because the thing you do not want to do is put someone who's infected already on just two drugs, because the tenofovir emtricinivine combinations that are in the drugs we use for PrEP are the mainstays of our regimens for ART. If you use just two drugs and not three, you run the risk of developing resistance. So it's critical that we know our patients that we're giving PrEP to are HIV negative. So you start with a fourth generation assay. You also start with a basic metabolic panel. You want to watch renal function. You need to know the hepatitis B virus status, both antigen and antibody. If they are antibody negative and at risk, they need vaccination. If they're antigen positive, you need to know that because tenofovir and emtricitabine are the drugs we use to treat hep B. If you suppress the hep B and then they decide to stop PrEP, you can have an acute exacerbation of hep B if you didn't know it was there and you didn't switch them to something else. So hepatitis B status, we need to know their hepatitis C status, syphilis antibody, chlamydia and gonorrhea at all exposed sites, remember three-site testing, and a urine pregnancy test in women so that you know the status. And then how often do you do that beyond baseline? It's every three months for making sure that they have remained HIV negative. Your basic metabolic panel is baseline, three months, and then every six months just baseline for hep B, baseline, and then yearly in IV drug users and men who have sex with men, which is where we're seeing new incident HC antibody show up. Syphilis antibody is baseline and then every six months. And in fact, in some places, you might want to do it every three months if you're having an epidemic like many places are. Chlamydia, gonorrhea at all exposed sites, baseline, and then every three to six months, there's discussion, but most people are landing on every three months in high-risk people. And then every three months on the urine pregnancy test. So that is how one monitors it. 
So how are we doing as far as clinicians making sure that this is utilized? Over time, it's gotten a little bit better, but it's said overall that there's about 1.2 million people in this country who need access to PrEP. So please remember that when you're talking to people about their sexual behavior, heterosexual and MSM. If you look at the communities of need, specifically in the black population, relatively few on PrEP. Hispanics, again, and women, very, very underrepresented in terms of what their needs actually are. And as I said, the South is where the new HIV diagnoses are occurring. So again, those of you located in the Southeast and Southern part of the United States, please think about this in all of your patients. And PrEP is something that can be done by good clinicians, regardless of whether or not they consider themselves an HIV specialist. There are not enough HIV specialists to take care of the PrEP needs. That's why we're making these algorithms and trying to get people to understand they can be very competent and expert PrEP providers, regardless of their subspecialty. We do have to understand, though, that there's some distrust and concerns among black MSM. There's a suggestion that there's a limited understanding of PrEP and that there's considerable groundwork that needs to be achieved in order to reap the full benefits of PrEP. There are still many people who don't trust that the drugs we're using aren't harmful to the African-American population. So why do people at risk lack the will to use PrEP? The biggest one is that they don't think they're at risk. And I think it's really interesting if you look at the MSM bar there, a huge proportion of MSM do not think that they're at risk for HIV infection when we know nationwide they're the leading risk for new infection. Many don't believe it really works. Many are worried about side effects, so it's important to bring those up in terms of both acute side effects when they first start, which are self-limiting almost always, and then long-term effects if one takes it for many years. I think one of the things that I try and tell patients as well as providers who are prescribing this is that it's not something people are going to be doing lifelong. I view it very much like birth control pills in women. It's taken for a period of time when they're at risk. They know it's not the right thing for them to have a baby, so they control their destiny by doing something to prevent it. This is the same. People's HIV level of risk changes over time, and I don't think you're going to be seeing many patients that are on PrEP for years and years on end. So again, toxicities are always something we worry about. It's something we discuss, but it is something that we can manage and moderate, and it's certainly, in my opinion, worth the risk of preventing an HIV infection if we can. Many don't want to pay for it, and then there's the one that probably is underreported, and that's that they're afraid someone's going to find out they're taking it and then think poorly of them, which is, again, I try and congratulate people on doing the things that are healthiest for them, be that watch their cholesterol, lose some weight, quit smoking, or use PrEP if they're at risk for HIV acquisition. So these are the studies that have been done, many, many studies, and I'm not going to go through all the details, but the lower bars are better. That's lower seroconversion rates in clinical studies of both men and women. As you can see, the two studies that didn't work very well, FemPrep and VOICE, are studies in women of PrEP. But when they went back and looked, the efficacy of PrEP in women was just as good as in men if they took the drug. There was exceptionally poor adherence in the VOICE and the FemPrep studies. So again, just so that you have the data and you understand that that's what happens sometimes in clinical studies. You have to take the meds to make it work.
And this shows you the relative reduction of HIV incidence if indeed people take 90% of their medicines, 90% of days they take it. Overall, in the IPREX study, it was 92% when they had detectable levels of tenofovir in their blood compared to 44% overall. That included people that simply weren't taking the drug. Heterosexual men and women detectable was 90%, and people who inject drugs in the Bangkok tenofovir study, in the detectable, it was about 70%. I think it was C. Everett Koop who said many years ago, for a medication to work, you have to take it. And this shows you that the threshold of drug adherence is exactly what determines whether or not you're going to be protected. The tenofovir DP level of 40 is associated with a 90% HIV risk reduction, and that 40 can be achieved if you take four of your seven doses a week. Again, it's not something I promote to patients, but just so you know, as long as somebody takes four of their seven doses or more, they are going to be in this realm of protection somewhere in the 90 to 99% protection rate. This is the DISCOVER trial. This was the study of TAF-FTC for PrEP. It was a head-to-head -head study. The analysis has shown the incidence rate favors FTAF, but most importantly, it meets the non-inferior status for FTDF, for TAF versus FTDF for HIV prevention. I think it's very, very showing that there were 22 infections in over 8,700 person years of follow-up in the studies in general. They both work. They both work quite well, again, if one takes them. How would you rate the safety of PrEP? If you look at the overall studies that have been done, PrEP versus placebo, 1 to 18% versus 0 to 10% experienced nausea, vomiting, and dizziness. And I will say, in use of the TDF or the TAF regimen, nausea and dizziness are the two things I see the most. It usually ends up actually within the first couple of three weeks, so simply having patients be patient with it. There was no difference between PrEP and placebo overall in any clinical laboratory AEs, and especially in grade three to four AEs, adverse events. Several studies noted subclinical declines in renal function and bone mineral density among PrEP users. There was a grade 2 to 4 elevation in creatinine only 0.2% of the time, and the bone mineral density loss was 0.4 to 1.5% across total hip, spine, femoral neck, and trochanter, and a return to baseline with withdrawal of PrEP. And there was no increased fracture risk, so the outcome of the bone mineral density, at least so far, and again, many patients have taken this for four to five years. So far, we've not seen an increase in fractures, but always something we want to be concerned about. But I think this shows us it is very, very safe. And then this was a meta-analysis of the risk of adverse events in 13 randomized trials of PrEP. Again, no significant difference in risk of specific renal or bone adverse outcomes. And the favorable safety profile of the new one, of the FTAF, would support more widespread use of PrEP in populations with a lower risk of HIV infection. Right now, we're simply targeting the highest risk individuals to get them on PrEP, but it may be that we will broaden this so that people who are at some risk but not the highest would also feel safe and protected by using it. 
Sometimes transgender women don't want to do ART because they're worried that it's going to affect their female hormone levels and their estrogenation. This has been studied and concurrent use of hormone therapy and PrEP did not alter the hormone levels so we can reassure our trans women. There was a tiny effect of the hormones on the tenofovir, but there was still plenty of tenofovir in the bloodstream to have efficacy of PrEP that we expect. So one can reassure our transgender women that their hormones are not in jeopardy. And then the last component that we'll discuss, getting it paid for. It's not cheap, but there are certainly things more expensive. You can apply for copay assistance. You bill the insurance company for the lab tests and clinic visits. And I will tell you, in all three of these categories, the insured, the not insured, and the not eligible for anything, the hardest thing to get paid for is truly your STI testing and your clinical lab testing, the creatinine and the recurrent testing for HIV. So billing insurance for the insured takes care of all of that, but then you have to deal with the copay assistance. If they're not insured, you can apply for all kinds of Medicaid and ACA plans. And then, depending upon household income, you can get assistance from the company. You can get assistance from many places. So care at a community health center with a sliding scale is also an option for many, many people. So these are the resources. You can apply for health insurance on the federal exchange at healthcare.gov. There are community health center locators that will help you find community health centers that do this. NASTAD online tool to assist with paying for PrEP. Gilead Sciences has financial support and resources through their advancingaccess.com, and that's a very generous program. And the Patient Advocate, or PAF Foundation, is a copay relief program at the email address that is there. And then finally, it really was helpful when the USPSTF, as I told you, certified this as a grade A recommendation for HIV screening and PrEP for HIV prevention. So it is official, and it can very much mean added insurance coverage. So we all try and follow guidelines. This is one that we really need to perk up with. Everybody 14 to 64 needs an HIV test at least once, repeated ones if they're still at risk, and if they are at high risk, they need to be offered PrEP. And I'll conclude by talking about the key components of medication adherence counseling, the dosage and schedule you need to make sure they understand, how to manage the common side effects, the relationship of adherence, having them know that they have to take the medicine, get those drug levels up in order for it to be efficacious, and then teach them about the signs and symptoms of acute HIV infection, fever, severe headache, stiff neck, swollen lymph nodes, truncal rash, the things that if they occur, they should contact you immediately. Support adherence and tailor the daily dose to the patient's routine. Have reminders and devices to minimize forgetting doses. Identify and address barriers to adherence. And then normalize the occasional missed dose. Trying not to say, have you taken all your medicines? Starting with, how many doses did you miss in the last week or two? Gives it a lot more normalization. Reinforce success. Congratulate them when they're able to take them regularly. Identify the factors that may interfere with adherence and plan with the patient how to address them. And then address the side effects. Assess them early. Tell them what to expect. And it's much easier for them to live with it.
So my opinion as an HIV specialist, any prescribing healthcare provider can deliver PrEP care. You want to test for HIV infection and exclude people who are infected from PrEP, order the recommended drugs, help the patient with insurance programs in getting it, prescribe so that they can get medication for up to 90 days, but I do not give more than a 90-day prescription, and they have to return primarily to get that next HIV test to make sure we're not treating people who have a acute infection, and follow up. I schedule appointments every three months. So that concludes my remarks. Remember that you can visit us at peerview.com slash preventHIV, download the slides and the practice aids. The CDC algorithm is a good one to have on your desk so that you can refer to it when you need to or on your iPhone or app. And then please think about starting the HIV Prevention Certified Provider Program and become a certificate-endorsed HIV prevention provider. So thank you. Some communities regard negatively those who are taking PrEP, especially men who have sex with men. How do we address this problem? That is an excellent question, and it's a very real thing. Sometimes it comes from their peers because they feel stigmatized to have to take something because they're, quote, high risk. I've also found communities of healthcare providers who think doing something like PrEP just precipitates more abnormal or bad behavior. I think this is very much like birth control in young women. Young women oftentimes know when it's not the appropriate time to get pregnant and have a baby, and they need some help to stay non-pregnant. This is a period of time when patients, people, our young ones are doing the things that essentially we all do when we grow up. We take a look at things and experiment. And if they're experimenting, we don't want them to come up with an HIV diagnosis. We can't cure HIV. We can treat it very well, but it's an expensive proposition and people have to take a medicine every day and it's stigmatizing. So I think trying to help everyone understand prevention of an HIV infection is the goal of the day and PrEP will do that. We just have to be offering it. So do I have advice on how to encourage patients on PrEP to maintain the use of barrier protection? Very difficult issue because so many people have chosen, whether we had PrEP or not, to not use condoms. They don't like them. They feel like it interferes with the intimacy that they want to have. And consequently, they haven't been using them. That's why we still have 40,000 new infections each year. I think it's important that they understand PrEP protects you from HIV sexually. It does not protect you from syphilis, gonorrhea, or chlamydia, all of which can be quite symptomatic and difficult as well especially syphilis, and we're starting to see a recurrence of congenital syphilis because our women are getting infected. So again, trying to help people understand that if they want to avoid the other STIs, that condoms do very much help and protect. What are the effects of long-term use of HIV PrEP medication? I think we covered that pretty well, and it's very low. It's 0.2% with some renal dysfunction, but minimal, not high-grade side effects, and some bone mineral density loss, but no fractures that are occurring because of it at this point. Certainly something that we are going to watch. And how often should patients on PrEP come back for testing? As I said, it's recommended at three months for a repeat HIV test, six months for STI testing, as well as creatinine. 
This is a very interesting question. Does PrEP work as well in cisgender women as in men? We think so. We know so in the TDF arm because that Trivada was studied there. It wasn't studied in cisgender women with Descovy, which is why the FDA did not give it a package insert indication for cisgender women. They are starting studies now in cisgender women. They've come up with a protocol they think they can do. Transgender women, we know it is effective because transgender women were included in the trials and it was effective. How often do you monitor the patient's renal function while on PrEP? I do it every six months. And this one is an opinion question. Should I recommend that all of my patients on TDF-FTC switch to TAF-FTC because of the different safety protocol? I haven't been, quite frankly. If patients are doing well and haven't shown any signs of creatinine bump and they're finding that the tenofovir TDF-FTC is cheaper with less copay issues, we certainly can't switch to TAF-FTC in our cisgender women because insurance will use the lack of a package insert to keep us from doing that very often. So I have not been. I may change my opinion. It's certainly something we should always consider maintaining a safety watch. As a psych nurse practitioner, I have many patients that are inconsistently adherent to prescribed medicines. Does this inconsistency affect the efficacies of the antivirals you use? I think them not taking their psych meds just precipitates behavior that makes sure they don't take all of their antivirals. It's not so much that it's the medications doing the interaction, but the motivation for patients who are not having their mental health issues taken care of as effectively as they could be if they took their medicines leads to some inconsistency in them taking their HIV meds, which is something, as an HIV clinician, we work with on a daily basis and try and get everyone to understand if you want ART to work as treatment as prevention, you have to be undetectable. To be undetectable, you have to take your medications on a daily basis. For the sexual history questions to assess risk, are there certain answers that definitively deem somewhat an increased risk for HIV, or should I use my clinical judgment? Well, I would ask that you always use your clinical judgment, but I think if someone is having receptive anal intercourse, being on the bottom without condoms, that is very high-risk sexual behavior, and that's the person I would prioritize in terms of trying to get them onto PrEP as quickly as possible. Can you discuss what to do if a client had all three doses of hepatitis B vaccine and their titers show they aren't immune? I would probably get them back and do the new two-dose hepatitis B vaccine, which may have some improved efficacy. There are, unfortunately, people who simply don't respond to the hepatitis B vaccine. It's low numbers, but it's there. But you might consider using the newer hepatitis B vaccine that's two doses with higher efficacy. Should client have a booster hep B vaccine and recheck hep B antibody in a month? Some people might not show immunity on their lab test, correct? Well, they might not show immunity because they didn't respond, and there's still a percentage of people who don't respond to hepatitis B vaccine for whatever reason. There's non-responders to most vaccines. But it's important that you test the hepatitis B in all people at high risk because we are seeing some increase in hep B infection as well. Thank you very much for your participation, and good luck if I can ever help. Just give me an email. Thank you. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and Health HIV.
Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash VQJ860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated.